Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Uh, hello and welcome to another uh, Hold My Drink podcast with myself, Neil Barnes, uh, my co-host, Jeff Fullington, and uh, today's guest, James Esses. Um, before we start talking about uh, having a conversation, I'd like to raise a drink. Um, this is a, a tradition with Hold My Drink. We like to keep it civil. Um, today, I am actually just with pineapple juice and lemonade. Uh, I couldn't find the alcohol to really make it exciting, but... <laughs> Cheers. Um, James, what are, you, what are you drinking today? Uh, not, not quite as tame as you, Neil. I've gone for a, a beer. Um, you might see it's got some rising on it that says gluten-free. Uh, I've been accused often of being intolerant, um, but actually the only thing I am truly intolerant towards is gluten, it would seem. <laughs> okay, thank you. How about yourself, Jeff? I have my coffee-flavoured coffee right here coffee flavored coffee it's it's morning here so i'm of course you're out on the, yeah you're out on the pacific coast right so yeah. it's like 10 a.m for you and yeah. james and i for those listening uh we're both based in the uk so it's about 6 p.m here so james is good for a beer excellent yeah. but socially acceptable at this stage of the day yeah certainly is um well thank you for joining us today james um uh, we've been in contact briefly before uh, my understanding is that um, you were working uh, on a child line, uh, uh, a helpline for children, and you were training to be a psychotherapist. And um, then some intolerance other than gluten was raised about you, which seems, from what I understand, to be uh, unfair. And that's led to a kind of a dramatic change for you. So maybe we could start if you could tell us a little bit about your story and we'll jump off from there. Sure, and, and thanks both for having me. Uh, yeah, so my, my life has changed quite dramatically over the last year. Um, as you said, I was I was training to be a, a therapist. My, my background is in law. I used to practice as a criminal lawyer, and I was working in the public sector in the UK for a while. But I, I started volunteering at Childline, which is a, a children's helpline, counselling young children. And I found it so fulfilling that I decided that that's how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. So I started this master's degree on weekends. Uh, at the time that everything kicked off, middle of last year, I was about three years into the course. I was just about to set up my own private practice for the first time, which was extremely exciting. Um, and then one day last May, I received an email from my university course uh, expelling me with immediate effect. Um, and my, my email address, my access to my student portal was was blocked and uh, a tweet was put out that same evening uh, announcing my expulsion. Um, and that has formed the basis of litigation that I'm currently embroiled in. Um, I'm, and we'll talk about the background of this, I'm sure, a bit more, but I'm, I'm taking them to an employment tribunal on the basis of discrimination against my beliefs. This all began because I was becoming increasingly concerned about the, the medicalization of children um, with gender dysphoria and that children were being put on a, a one-way path towards this medicalization. 
And I was concerned in particular that with the UK announcing that they were going to ban conversion therapy, which has happened abroad. Um, I was concerned that this would potentially criminalise ethical exploratory therapy with children who felt that they were trapped in the wrong bodies. And it was this speaking out that ultimately it would seem cost me uh, my course and my future vocational plans. So you was uh, that's a, it's a shocking story um, to start with. Um, you said you was three years in. Was it like a four year course? Was you like on the cusp of completion as well? Five five year course. Five year uh, course. Yeah. But yes, as I said, I was literally. I think it was three weeks before this email dropped into my inbox. I'd just been signed off from my place of study to set up this private practice. So everything's moving in the right direction. So you'd had no other conflicts or issues with your course or or with um, Childline at all uh, up until that point? No, as far as I was aware, I was, I was doing pretty good. I, I passed all my modules and essays. Um, I, I was already seeing clients for therapy on a, on a voluntary placement with, with a charity called Mind. At Childline, Childline gave me the boot a few weeks after my, my university course oh. gave me the boot. Um, I'd been counselling there for five years. I think I'd racked up over a thousand hours of counselling. Um, they said that they simply didn't want me to be publicly identified as one of their counsellors because of the way I, I, because what I was speaking about. Um, so they just told me not to come in again, basically. Wow. Um, where do we go from there? Like, I mean, I guess the question I'd like to ask before we. I need to ask you a little bit more about what the medicalization of children means because I'm not entirely certain myself. But um, the idea, um, people you said about children that might feel they were trapped in the wrong uh, gendered bodies. I'm thinking, is that something that would actually come up with your work on Childline, or is was it actually quite separate from that? I mean, is that something that children brought into into that request for help when they called? Uh, increasingly so, and actually, it was that which caused me to engage in research uh, and immerse myself in the literature on this topic because each year that was going by in Childline more and more children of younger and younger ages were coming through to me and my colleagues saying that they felt they were trapped in the wrong bodies and um, so I was noticing this trend a lot more younger girls as well and yeah I mean I I became concerned because again we'll, we'll probably talk about this in greater detail but I I would do what I did for any other young person that came through. I would explore um, their background, their, their thoughts and views on things and, and kind of, yeah, how they felt themselves. But often these children were at such a place, pre-puberty often, that they, they couldn't even articulate to me in, in basic terms what they meant when they used the word trans or what puberty looked like to them. They had no concept of it because they were so young. And yet these same children were telling me that they wanted to bind their breasts and that they wanted to go on to take puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. I mean, that is pretty shocking because um, yeah, it, how do, uh, maybe you discovered this in when you started learning more about this, but like how would young people become informed of these concepts when you say it's not something they're able to articulate for themselves? I can like most people can re can maybe remember themselves at uh, prepubescent ages, had no 
formation of a sense of what gender really was at all. I was just much more interested in kicking balls and running around and playing with the dog or whatever else. But um, and maybe I'm fortunate in in that. But it does it, it is striking that people at that age would have that type of knowledge when it doesn't seem to be something that actually during the developments developmental cycle is really that present so um did you find out more in your learning as to to how young people have come across these ideas and it's interesting that these the numbers of children reporting this was increasing rapidly and that you said that was becoming predominant um you said there was a lot more young girls um so i remember i don't know at least in this sort of 70s and 80s um when uh, transgender and transsexual um, identities were really being um, um, presented in news and media as, as something that people needed to be aware of and what this actually meant. It seemed to be occurring only amongst boys or very much predominantly amongst boys and at a very, a very early age, but it was really low numbers, like, like one in 10,000 or less. Um, but it, it sounds like that's quite different now, James. So can yeah yeah something that yeah i mean uh, overall across the world the figures are going up often people will say well this is simply because people feel more able to speak out about these things possibly that's true but i i really don't think that's the whole picture i mean this seems to have coincided particularly in terms of advances and technology um the piece around young girls, I mean, the demographic is completely switched. It, it used to be predominantly young boys, now it's predominantly young girls. Something has shifted in the ether. Um, and the argument and some of the latest research seems to suggest this idea of social contagion, which we know from looking at other conditions that um, girls uh, can can experience and, and have a propensity towards. I mean, we've seen this Historically, for example, in relation to eating disorders at schools, I read a recent study looking at Tourette's because historically Tourette's syndrome was um, predominantly boys. And now there's been certain clusters, girls emerging in certain schools or in certain uh, out of hours activity groups where whole clusters of girls are developing Tourette-like symptoms. Um, So I I think there has to be an element of this contagion going on. Um, but but yes, it is it is quite striking. But I, I found in Childline, I found on my course, uh, and even in the wider therapeutic community, that people, uh, the powers that be, were not willing to engage in a conversation about this. What why this was? Why do you think that is? Because <clears throat> I noticed that too. Hmm. Um. Well, I. <laughs> To be honest, I, I, I've immersed myself in this so much and I, and I feel that the arguments are so strong in terms of what I'm putting forward that I, I find often that I think people shy away from discussion or debate on this from the other side of the discussion because they don't really have an answer. And, and I think that it, they know that if they were to actually engage in an open debate on this and have some sort of spotlight shone on them, they wouldn't really have what, you know much place to go with this. I, I also think it comes out of a place of um, ideology. I mean, we're using this term captured nowadays, but it's true that that many of our institutions 
have been taken over by ideologues and, and are not willing to distance themselves from it. I mean, therapy uh, should be a place for people to discuss complex, sensitive issues, to listen, you know, empathetically and openly to one another. Um, nothing should be off the table, really, one would think when it comes to psychotherapy discussions, but I and colleagues have learned that that's no longer the case. Well, one thing I'd like to find out more about is this concept of exploratory therapy and conversion therapy, because it's being spun as, like, what what exactly is the debate over conversion therapy versus exploratory therapy? Because what you described as ethical exploratory therapy seems very benign to me, but it's being spun as conversion therapy, and you're transphobic if you support it. Well... We're seeing this all kick off in the UK at the moment because the government is kind of flip-flopping on what they're going to do with this legislation. And actually yesterday there was uh, a protest um, by various trans lobbies outside um, number 10 Downing Street. Uh, and I, I looked at some of the placards they were holding up and I, I listened to some of the statements they were putting out. I mean, the, the CEO of Stonewall, um, which is a familiar household name these days, um, said that... Uh, basically the government by not banning conversion therapy are allowing young people to be tortured young trans people to be tortured now, now the last time again my background's in law but the last time I checked the legal system in this country torture was already illegal uh, and has been for a very long time so this is this is just rhetoric divisive rhetoric I mean most conversion therapy practices, if we think about what, typically what conversion therapy means in the strict sense of the term, have already been outlawed. You know, anything to do with um, physical violence, which a lot of it was down to, is already caught by existing legislation. So what is left? Talking therapies or even religious prayer. Those seem to be the things now that activists want to be captured by new legislation. What's their objection to talking therapy? Well, that's a good question. Um, but they, they, they would seem to, I mean, they, they use very, very vague language. So in the government, in the UK government's consultation on this, they said that they were considering banning any form of therapy which was designed to change or suppress someone's gender identity. Uh, now, the word suppress is very ambiguous, uh, re really quite vague. I mean, what does that mean exactly? You know, for example, as a therapist, you might pause for reflection. You might pause to gently challenge your client about what they're saying, particularly if it's inconsistent with something they previously said to you. I mean, on, on the reading of the word suppression, those could technically be considered suppression because it's a pausing it's not a affirming um so i but i think those on the other side basically see therapy as i don't know a, a risk to affirmation and, and they view it that if somebody says they're trans they are trans and it's not something to be questioned but we come back to the fact that gender dysphoria is a mental health condition well it is now. I, I saw that there's a movement trying to even get that removed from the DSM. Yes, I, I, I saw that too. And I saw some, I don't know whether this is the confirmed final wording, but in the, in the newer version of the DSM that's to come out, 
the, the wording has been watered down. And actually there's some kind of ideological language, I would say, being used in it. For example, they're using the term sex assigned at birth, which is a, a medically inaccurate term. So the fact that that would appear in a DSM um, definition concerns me. But yes, there are, the, the, there are efforts to, to water this down. But in the UK, it still to this day remains the position that if you want to medically or legally transition, you have to be diagnosed with this mental health condition. Oh. It doesn't surprise me with the DSM because its content is decided upon by committee. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean a committee of medical experts. So it, I can see how something um, that's rather uh, loosely connected to um, scientific reality, which I believe the DSM could easily claim to be, um, and where various members of the committees might be on the boards of pharmaceutical companies um, and various other. Uh, you mentioned technology and medicalization earlier. Um, and I'm just starting to be curious as to whether there is a, a push towards an industry growth, um, because mm. my understanding is that um, the surgeries and medications involved in um, gender transition, I think that's the right phrase, are multi-billion dollar industries now. Um, but the I so I can see how that aspect may come into play. I'm really curious about um, what might be the goal of these sort of ideologues in just affirming anyone that claims to be transgender as being so. Um, I, I just, I, I struggle to imagine why that would be something people would pursue as opposed to what you're describing. I can understand how um, you'd it would be appropriate to explore somebody's feelings around this. And if they, you know, mm. if that sort of becomes over time to be certain that that is, that they feel they are transgender, then they are. Okay, there's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's not something that something should be prevented. Um, but the exploration seems quite natural because it could go either way and it, um, I, I'm guessing that um, the healthiest way to go is the way that actually resonates most naturally and most deeply with a person. So, and I, my understanding also is that detransitioning is, is difficult, uh, very, very difficult and dangerous. Uh, and that the effects of these medications and surgeries cannot just simply be reversed or paused. Um, they're pretty unidirectional. Um, so that type of commitment to change could be harmful if it was the wrong commitment to make um mm. so i'm wondering why or if you have any ideas why there's an ideology that is pushing towards absolute affirmation um and non-questioning like what would be an end goal for this well i think there's a number of layers to it i mean if we think about it you know from a more abstract philosophical position it's because it aligns with their philosophy i mean if you think about postmodernism, if you think about way that intersectionality is is taken hold as well it's this idea that everything's up for debate you know objectivity should be thrown out the window and if someone says they are something they are and that identity matters more than anything else so you know what why would the same not apply here um someone says they're trans someone says they're trapped in the wrong body they are and we should do everything in our power to enable <coughs> them 
trace their true identity. I mean, I would imagine that would be how many of these individuals would put it. Um, so I think there's that philosophical link. Um, I think some people believe that they're doing the, the morally correct thing. You know, it's, it's not easy to listen to somebody to saying that they feel like their body doesn't belong to them. And they, they, they reject their body. They, they don't feel like they are who they say they should be. I mean, you know, gender dysphoria can be hugely debilitating. So I think there's a lot of people for whom they think, well, I'll do whatever I can to take away this person's pain. Um, I think for some, and I would say, you know, I want to make the point, I'm not saying everyone, I'm saying a minority, but there might be, you know, more, um, more, more concerning aims as part of this. I mean, you know, this has been spoken about recently in the context of women's safety and women's rights. But, you know, if we introduce a system in which self-ID is a thing and anyone can say they're a woman at any time, you know, that does leave the doors open for certain predatory individuals to take advantage of that. And I, I just want to make the point, because this seems to be constantly conflated, I'm not saying that trans people are predators. I'm not saying that all trans people are predators. I'm not saying the majority of trans people are predators. All I'm saying is that by allowing this kind of open-ended narrative in which anyone can define themselves as anything, it risks leaving vulnerable individuals open to abuse. So I, I think what you yeah, I think what I'm hearing is that predators can take advantage of the trans identity rather than saying like you said you said very clearly you're not saying that trans people are predatorial you say but it sounds like someone that it, that maybe is predatorial may look at this look at the open-endedness and self-identification as uh an opportunity that they would take advantage of which is actually discrediting and harmful to the trans community in general Hmm. Um, so that they can take advantage of what might be uh, um, an opening legal space in order for them to be able to um, fulfill whatever predatorial fantasy they may be holding. And I guess if we see that in particular in things that um, what would have been considered safe spaces for women um, yeah. and, and unfortunately prisons, which aren't really a safe space for anybody, but you would expect that. I guess what biological sex used to be considered the the um, deciding factor on whether somebody goes to one space or another space. Um, mm. But that gender, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but it, it seems to me that gender is is has taken over from sex as being the way that you identify people. Does that sound about right? Mm. Like, yeah. Well, we've 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 regressed back to stereotypes. I mean, mm. I. It, it seemed for a while as if we were moving towards this idea, this liberal idea uh, that, you know, uh, boys and girls can have mixtures of masculine and feminine traits and you can have more feminine boys and more masculine girls and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that seemed to be quite a progressive way of looking at it. Now, with what I'm coming across, particularly in terms of the materials being taught to young children in schools, we're regressing back to stereotypes. This I've seen this idea to young boys that if they like the colour pink or flowers, they might be trapped in the wrong body. It's, you know, mm. oh, if, that's really interesting. We're making progress for, for decades and we just lost it all overnight, it would seem. Yeah, that is really interesting to, to, to sort of view it that way. I hadn't considered that, but um, that sounds like conversion 
as well. <laughs> Bizarrely, it sounds like a conversion of, uh, well, you must be something, you must be trans because of um, we've decided that for you. So that doesn't sound very exploratory either. Um, no, it, it doesn't. You know, one of the key tenets, particularly of therapy, is that you should never go in with a predetermined outcome. But for the organisations, including therapeutic organisations, calling for an affirmation approach, that's exactly what they're doing. They're predetermining where that client should end up, which is being affirmed towards transitioning. And another thing I want to address, there's this idea out there that I keep running into that we don't think trans people should exist. And I, none of that's true. I don't know anybody that doesn't recognize the reality of trans people or thinks that they should not exist. I'm gay myself, and I don't know any gay gay kid that doesn't at one point question whether he's female or not. There's a lot of confusion. Females are the only people around that are also attracted to males that you kind of have as models to draw on. So I went to, through several sessions of exploratory therapy as a kid. I was about 16. It was with a psychiatrist, probably four or five sessions, and we kind of worked all that out and determined that I was gay. I can't imagine if they had taken that as a sign to rush me into transitioning or, or that, yes, you are a woman. It would have ruined my life. Yeah, and, So and I, I like the principle of not assuming an outcome ahead of time. And I think that is kind of what's happening. And then you're transphobic if you suggest otherwise or you don't think trans people should exist or it's transgenocide or trans erasure. And that's just not the case. This, this has been happening. This kind of therapy has been happening for decades. And it was very effective and benign. Yeah, well, I think what you just said there is crucial and, you know, you, your own personal experience of this, particularly in relation to sexuality, because we know, statistically speaking, that most people, most children with gender dysphoria will end up coming out as gay. So, you know, there, there is something going on here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I have some friends who have said to me, thank God I was born 10, 20 years ago, because if I had been born later than that, I would have transitioned. You know, and and I'm very happy I did not because I'm just a happy lesbian, you know, woman, for example, and I haven't I haven't destroyed my body irreversibly in the process. You know, so uh, yeah, what you've just said there definitely resonates. Do you think that the narrative that children are and younger people are able to pick up on? that includes all of this um, language and awareness of procedures. Um, so, so there's definitely like a, a, a story out there and you just described as being taught to children. Oh, if, if you, I think the example you gave is if you're a boy, but you like pink, then maybe you're in a girl's body or you're a girl in a boy's body. Um, so there's this particular narrative, which is kind of disrupting how children might get to experience themselves mm. and explore who they are over time. And then at the same time, there seems to be a capture of the institutions that are in the place of caring for people, um, which is moving away from exploration and towards almost converted affirmation. So are, are these two narratives coming from the same place? Um, are there different groups out there whose aspirations seem to have found a, a common ground? Um, because you spoke about sort of ideologues earlier, and I'm quite interested in what those ideologies might be, or if you know much about what they are. 
Um, well, I think I think it's become a kind of a uh, continuum. Uh, I think I think for children, in terms of what they've been exposed to throughout a day, they've been fed this ideology. So again, I've come across many many concerning materials that have been taught to young children. I've had parents reach out to me who've had significant concerns about the way in which teachers are speaking to the young people. Um, I can give some examples that would be helpful. But so they're, they're being fed this ideology in the school. And, and historically, a school was a place in which parents would entrust their children um, for safety and also to be educated uh, in, in an impartial, you know, objective manner. Whereas now, um, many parents I'm, I know of don't trust the school anymore. Um, so they've been fed this. And then afterwards, well, what are they doing? Well, they're going online, onto social media, onto these online communities, these message boards, uh, and they're being affirmed, and they're being told they're part of a community, and they've been told they're loved, and they've been told that family isn't blood. These are all quotes that I've come across. Um, so they're being alienated, particularly from family. I mean, you know, I think it's understandable in many ways that, uh, you know, a parent of a young child who says that they want to transition might need some time to get their head around that but these children have been told by some of these communities if your parents aren't okay with it screw them you can come and be with us instead um so they're, they're being fed this this diet and then they'll go on to the news for example and you know uh, the, the bbc are, are definitely not covering these stories neutrally there's definitely a certain bias towards one side in my opinion at least and they'll see protests going on like outside number 10 Downing Street yesterday with people holding up placards saying you know trans rights are human rights and and don't kill us and stop trying to deny our existence what type of message does that give to a young person so I, th I think from the moment they wake up to the point they go to bed uh, young people can be inundated by this ideology in numerous different fora Another thing I see is there's kind of like a, a deadline to there. There's a time element to this related to puberty. And it's crucial that you do something and stop it before puberty because that's the worst thing that can happen to a trans. And that's another thing I don't understand is, is this horror of puberty and this rush to, to do it before puberty. Like, like they add this heightened urgency to it that to me is just not there. And that, that's particularly relevant because, as we know, if a child starts on puberty blockers before they've gone through puberty, or at least commenced puberty, and then they could progress straight on to cross-sex hormones, which most of them do, they can be left, you know, permanently infertile. So this, excuse me, the ramifications are massive. But, you know, well, why is this happening? It's, Yeah, it, it, it's it's this fear that's been put onto the shoulders of parents, but also these young people that if, if they go through puberty, if the bodies start to develop, that when they eventually decide or are old enough to change their mind and transition, you know, that job will be made much harder because they would have developed mm. the genitals, the rest would have developed. So they've been kind of sold this picture of, well, you know, you might as well hedge your bets and do it now rather than later on. It, it, they, it, they make it seem very, um, very simple, very, very straightforward. But what this does, 
with this urgency of time, as you put it, is that it denies children the opportunity to explore and to develop and learn about themselves. I mean, puberty is a confusing, crazy time mm-hmm. for everyone with hormones rushing about. Nobody knows which way is up. And it's often not particularly comfortable. Um, and, you know, particularly for young girls, especially when they start to develop sexually and they're starting to get unwanted attention, whether from boys or even sometimes, unfortunately, from older men, you know, it's not surprising they want to hide away and almost disown these parts of themselves. But as we know, you know, human beings have been around for a long time. We've been going through this process. You know, people tend to find a way through it and come to accept and embrace who they are. But we're denying children that opportunity by telling them they must make up their mind before they even commence puberty. It seems like it, yeah. <clears throat> it does also, it also, I mean, my my memory of being a younger person was that um, ideas that would be presented to me, I might just kind of take for granted as being true. So I think I was much more susceptible to being led in any particular direction, a healthy direction or an unhealthy direction. Like, I don't think I had the uh, cognitive capacity or knowledge to sort of really challenge and question and inquire deeply into things until... I was probably in university and really started to to um think for myself a lot more so i i have a sense that um the younger a person is targeted maybe the easier they are to persuade uh into taking a particular route as well so i think it'd be much harder to convince a 25 year old that everything's this is how it is and you, you don't need to ask questions just you need to get on with it compared to say like a 12 year old who could maybe much more easily led so that it does feel to me, it feels quite intentionally um, almost predatory in in targeting young people who are, are less able to have a sort of cognitive, rationalised um, response and sort of sit down and mull through the facts and ask the right questions. And, and that should be the role of adults to protect children and provide them with the space in order to do that, particularly for parents. So... It's quite scary for, for me hearing you say how um, there's particular narratives disrupting the family dynamic, um, which seems like it's disempowering parents from being able to be parents. Mm. Um, and that's coming through this. You said that's coming through the school system. Um, is, and is that the same in the US, Jeff? Is that the same? I was talking on Twitter yesterday with an activist teacher that flat out said he's going to go against the parents. He doesn't care if it's wrong. He doesn't care if it's legal. He doesn't care if it's ethical. He's going to do it anyway. I use the example of Jehovah's Witness kids celebrating Halloween. and Because when I was growing up, they didn't celebrate Halloween. So we did our Halloween party. They sat off to the side. He said, I would give them candy anyway. I don't care what the parents think. The parents have no right to do that to the kids and, and impose. Their, so they're they're like deciding which religions are acceptable or not. And then taking it upon themselves to treat kids differently if they think they come from households whose religion they don't approve of. So there's all kind of ethical and complications involved in this. And not to mention um, another element, and we don't have to get into this today, but autism. There's an intersection with autism in this, and I'm autistic myself, so I'm concerned about autistic kids being vulnerable to this. And there's capitalism. I just found out what packers, packers are. These, there's these little plastic penises that kids can put in their crotch to simulate a penis, like for the fe- female to male 
transsexual kids. So there's a whole industry now that's producing products for, that's sending this message too, that look, you need this. I'm interested to hear from James, since you're in the UK, uh, what's your perspective on the U? Like, do you have any sense of the US versus the UK around this issue? Yeah, I mean, no, no offense to the US, Jeff, but I think you're, uh, I think you're, you're way further down the track than we are in terms of embracing this ideology. I mean, I, and to be, to be frank, sometimes I look across at what's happening in the US and think, thank God we don't have that over here. But I, I, I can see some, I can, I can see some of that potential on the horizon, uh, and I think often the UK does tend to take its lead from the US um, in this respect. So. I, I do see elements of it seeping into our society as well, but I, yeah, I th I th the US feels like a completely different beast. To be honest, I, I don't, yeah. I don't envy that. I mean, I, I feel like at the moment in the UK things are slightly shifting, but the, the US, I, I, I don't get the feeling that that's the case. Are there things we could do to shift it, or do you have any solutions or recommendations? <laughs> based on your experience in the UK of what we might be able to do? I know the systems are different. Well, I think from my own personal experience, once the conversations start happening, once the spotlight has been shone on the actual arguments, people cannot avoid them. Um, so, and we've kind of had to force ourselves in the UK into relevance, into the media spotlight. And they are starting to listen now, but you know, Previously, we're finding that, you know, the other side don't want to debate openly about this, that papers and media outlets weren't covering the issue from our perspective. I think you, I think you need to turn the media narrative a bit um, and encourage as far as possible, you know, open airing of these issues. But, but again, the problem is, again, and particularly in the States, you know, the cancel culture and the no platforming of speakers on university campuses, et cetera, makes that extremely difficult, you know, to have these issues opened out. And um, I, I think I think in both countries, if we're going to make any real shift, it's got to start with the youngest children, to be honest, because they're, they're the next generation. You know, I'm, again, I'm concerned that because a whole generation has been fed this at school and then at university, that even though I think things are getting better in the UK now, in a few years' time, it could all go back the other direction again. And that eventually this ideology is just taken hold because all children and university students have been told that it is the you know undeniable truth. And and the parents as well, I think. I think the especially in the US, the parents have the potential to be our biggest allies once you get them pissed off enough. One of the cruxes of the debate to me seems to be who owns the kids. Cause I keep hearing over and over from the activist teachers that parents don't own their kids. Well, you don't own them either. Like the teachers own them even less than the parents do. So there's a debate on who exactly has authority and control over the kids. And that's new to me. That wasn't in my generation. It was just taken for granted that parents were the final authority over their kids. And the debate shifted now to no, they're not. Who is? I, I agree. I think I think how we view our children and young people in society are almost as kind of consumers these days. You know, it's it's what we, we, we should give children what they want. If children tell us something's true, we should believe them. 
you know, without question, um, if parents do anything that the child, the child doesn't like, that parent should be reprimanded for it. You know, the, there's parental responsibility, but there's also parental rights. And, and part of that is about protecting our, you know, their children. I, I, I still find it very bizarre that in the UK, at least, a child of a certain age cannot buy a bloody scratch card or, or even vote for a, for a prime minister in an election, oh, yeah. but consent to irreversible medication. How does that add up in terms of safeguarding? Yeah, but it, de it definitely doesn't. I mean, and it's quite a shocking change in society that we're kind of arriving at, at this point. Um, can can I ask you, sort of looping back to how we started, James? When when you received um, your expulsion from the university, were they clear at all as to why? No, it was two paragraphs, and it said that I brought them into disrepute. And I haven't been provided with any evidence uh, or any policies. I've been told that some complaints have been made about me, but I wasn't ever given those complaints or told the exact nature of them. So, no, I've, I've never to this day, I've never had a conversation with anyone in my place of study about this. Is there a process where you can get that information? That, something similar here happened to me, too. And I tried to get the complaint or get the information and, and there were all these roadblocks to I still I still don't didn't get to see the original complaint. So is there a process in the UK where you're able to get that information? Yeah, so there's well there's a couple of routes. The first is a, a data subject access request, you know, requesting my personal data, um, which I did. Uh, and but the thing is, they're, they're in control of what they share with you, and there's various exemptions and exceptions. But, but I received various correspondence, emails, etc., that were taking place internally, which have um, definitely boosted my case and were part of the reason I decided to bring the litigation in the first place, because I was able to see some of what was going on internally at the time they got rid of me. But as I said, they can choose what they share, and it's very heavily redacted, etc. But the, the other method, unfortunately, is going through litigation, you know, so I'm, I'm bringing this case sure. and we're going to get to a place in which they're going to have to disclose everything relating to this, even if it doesn't help them. You know, they're going to be legally bound to disclose it. It's unfortunate that it's taking a legal case to bring that about because all I've ever asked for is basic transparency. But mm -hmm. that, that's where we are. So, yes, it's. It's a shame, but I think sometimes these institutions need to be forced to hand over this material. Transparency is, is another one of the big issues, especially in the States, like with curriculum. The, the less transparent they are, I think the less trust that people are starting to have. So I think the transparency issue is another angle to push back on this yeah. with. Uh, and it does seem to me that the, the use of like, very serious accusation um, is a is a quite an effective way to try to um, either gain um, credence from say the public say to do it say oh you're committing trauma against children or um, you're trying to kill trans people I mean that that sort of heavy hyperbolic rhetoric um, it's actually very powerful because it's very emotionally stimulating and if you're a uh, 
a bystander with little or no knowledge as to what's going on, but you hear that language, you're probably going to be emotionally drawn to saying, oh, this is a terrible thing like a reactionary emotional response. This is a terrible thing. And I think that's how, uh, in part, I think that's how this has gained so much traction in the community is the emotive nature of it. Um, and I, I hear frequently as well the, um, the absence of dialogue, the absence of exploration and the absence of evidence. And um, I'm. I, it feels to me that what, like maybe British and American, just to keep it simple, uh, society and culture has got caught up in the emotion around rights and the emotion around harm um, and has been, I think captured is probably the right word that you've used it a few times, James, um, into falling in line behind um, ideas that don't have evidence to back them up. Um, so I'm wonder, I'm also wondering whether uh, it's it may be a necessity to hold these debates initially in places such as courts where there is a requirement for evidence to, to be presented. It's otherwise it seems impossible to engage in an actual sensible conversation. Um, and that's shock. And again, going back to therapy as uh, uh, as an as an industry, as a profession, yeah. uh, it that to me seem would seem to be like the very last place where this might happen. So I'm still quite shocked that that, that it's actually a therapy training that have done this for, to you and haven't engaged in conversation with you and basically mm -hmm. just ha haven't acted in any way that you'd expect either a university or or a therapeutic. Um, training provider to, to act. So, um, is your case coming up soon, James? Is your court case imminent? Uh, so I've got I've got a preliminary hearing uh, for a few days in June, and then hopefully at that the trial days will be set. Um, but that that will be a few more months down the line. It could even be early twenty three. Um, just just touching on briefly on the point you just made about uh, the narrative. I think it's been pitched very much as kind of us versus them battle. I mean, that's particularly effective. That's what gets people riled up and angry. Um, so, again, going back to what happened to me, when they announced my expulsion on Twitter, they also included a link to a statement of solidarity with the LGBT community. Now, what, what does that do? Well, that, that immediately paints me as being anti the LGBT community and it sets up this battleground straight away <clears throat> you know so th 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 this is what's going on and then it's so then it's not surprising you know I, I've received a hell of a lot of vitriol and, and abuse from uh, gender ideologues and trans activists online but it, it, is it any wonder because I've been pitched to them as being anti them and social media is probably the worst place to have these kind of debates. I mean, outrage is going to get way more clicks than rational, reasoned debate will, too. And so if they use social media as the forum to announce this and then start their portrayal of you, they were doing it in a through a medium that's designed for maximum outrage and pathos. Correct. And I spend more time than I care to think trying to encourage those who would seek to have my free speech infringed upon to exercise their own damn free speech. You know, I, I, I'm forever 
at calling out people on social media saying, all right, let's have an open debate. Let's have it neutrally moderated. Let's even live stream it. Let's just, and it will be a respectful debate, but let's get the issues aired. I've never had that offer accepted once. We'll do it. <clears throat> if you get anyone that wants to do it, we'll host. Yeah, cool. All right. Jeff and I have had a similar experience, James, of um, of Twitter as a medium of outrage and being sort of attacked or drawn into debates and have said, well, okay, should we just take it to, to Zoom? Mm-hmm. And not even in a public forum, just, just shall we do this face-to-face like human beings and speak about it? And there's never engagement. And and I find that really interesting and scary um, that you can use outrage, you can use ritual, you can, um, it's quite Hegelian sort of presentation if you're either for us or against us. It's very black and white, surprisingly binary thinking for, for mm. groups that seem to be very into non-binary as a narrative. <laughs> Um, except for if you don't agree with me, in which case the only option is you must be the opposite. <laughs> that, that is really, really um, incoherent and incongruent. Uh, as um, but it does seem to be very tactical as well. Um, yeah, it, it's well, like, they, set up, they set up traps. They set up boundaries and, and roadblocks. There's a there's a, a, a an activist called Casey Montgomery uh, over here in the UK. Um, I, I invited them many times to have a debate and I kept being told that no, it was to be on their terms. And so that she had, she had written an article on Medium, I think, and her response was, if you want to debate me, write your own article in response to my article. You know, I, why, 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 why should I be forced to have to spend that amount of time writing an article in a silo which isn't actually a direct dialogue or conversation with one another. And who's going to want to spend the time reading through that article? And then it's what, is she going to write a, a further response article? Or are we going to keep writing articles back and forth until the day we drop dead? Or could we just possibly have a conversation for half an hour and just have a dialogue? You know, it's, it's not that difficult. I think, and there's a really, that's a really key word as well, dialogue, because it, and it is a backwards and forwards, which hopes to explore to the truth of something to reach logos to to reach some form of uh shared understanding and it doesn't feel like shared understanding is a goal in any of this from what you've told us today and from what i've heard previously it does feel like it's um if i'm going to take the position of the transactivist in this it's it's either my position or shut the hell up you're wrong and you're evil um and that in, in, even as I say that out loud, um, I'm getting the sense of how absolutely right I must be. And not just right as in being correct, but also righteous as in I'm, I'm the good and, and you're the evil. Um, and it does feel almost, well, I guess what's coming up for me right now is it feels almost religious. Um, and maybe that resonates with this sort of the ideology as well. There's not, I'm not saying it is a religion, but it has the same sort of, maybe that sort of, sort of fundamentalist elements to it as well. Um, yeah. And that shouts danger to me. So uh, I'm really hoping that you're, um, what you're doing now, I'm, first of all, thank you for what you're doing right now. It's very brave. I think it's very mm-hmm. necessary. Um, and it sounds like you're approaching this in the most sort of uh, sensible and ethical way that you can. And I wish you every success uh, with your case. 
Um, but I'm also curious as if there's anything that ourselves or others can do to support you, um, and what that might look like, um, or where people can get in, in a, uh, maybe keep up with what's going on for you or share resources, anything that just can sort of provide you with a base of support and, and a place of contact. And um, if you could, if you if you're able to name it, then we'll see what we can do to help. Thank you. Uh, what would I ask of people? I think for for, for society more generally, I, I would ask that if people feel able to, I appreciate it's not easy in this day and age, but to speak out um, because until uh, I do believe there's a silent majority on our side, but until people start to speak out, things are not going to change. But and, you know the. <laughs> And, and there will continue to be more full people for this who will suffer and lose, you know, the livelihoods or the reputations or whatever. But I, I would implore people to speak out if they feel able to, um, because, you know, there, you will have a lot of support out there. Um, in terms of what people can do for me personally, I mean, people have already been extraordinarily generous. I've had complete strangers who owe me nothing donate to my crowdfunding um, to get me through this litigation. But I still, I mean, litigation is, you know, damn expensive and I'm going to need to raise more as I get closer to the case so people can go onto my crowdfunding page maybe you'll be able to link that for something but um, or you can just type into Google James S's crowdfund and you know that's where I put all the updates in the case and if you feel able to donate a small amount that that's not a requirement but it's very much appreciated um, other than that Twitter I'm uh, active these days I, I only got twitter for the first time a year ago i was really late to the party and as for everyone else it's now taken over my life and i'm a full-blown addict so <laughs> uh, and yeah i'm also happy for people to reach out to me individually like I, i've learned actually the most from random emails that have been sent to me by other therapists or parents or teachers just sharing with me their own experiences and i think it's really important that i don't get carried away with the kind of high level rhetoric and then I come back to the impact that this is having on individuals lives so I'm always happy for people to to reach out to me directly and to share their story and we'll put those links in the description when this gets posted too <clears throat> and are there communities growing out there that are supporting each other um people that are facing these issues because it sounds like something that's going to affect a lot more people before it maybe changes for the better and you said yourself that you're concerned that going through the education process from children in school through to university that maybe it will take a turn for the worst first so um if there are people watching today um or watching uh, who are uh experiencing some of this themselves have you any recommendations where they might be able to find a group or how they might be able to find people that are in the same boat as them yeah there's there's, there's more and more groups springing up i mean there's so many you know from a, from a therapeutic perspective i've co-founded this group called thoughtful therapists um who are trying to make some inroads in this um there is for schools for example there's a there's a new group that just started in, in the uk called parents for education which is about supporting parents who are having issues with their children's schools about ideology that's being pushed there and you know grouping together in, in order to raise their concerns with those schools um and the similar groups that i've come across although their exact names escape me for social workers and, and for teachers and lawyers as well so 
that there are more and more of these kind of grassroots groups springing up, particularly on social media and Twitter. So you know, people are not alone. Again, if people want to reach out to me, I can signpost them towards the right group. That's very kind of you. And we have our own little community that Hold My Drink started too. We have a Discord for listeners and viewers that want to continue the discussions and get to know each other. So you can contact us for a link to that as well. Oh, that's great. That's all stuff we can um, we can put below in the links below, so um, people can follow up on on any of this if they feel they want to. Um, James, it's been fascinating and a little frightening to hear how how the world's going. Um, but um, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else that um, you feel that you wanted to say that I haven't had an opportunity to? No, just to thank you both again. I, you know, I think it's been an enjoyable conversation and, and, and maybe you'll, you'll have me back again in a few years' time when the world's in a hopefully better place. Well, thank yeah, you. And it, yeah, and in between, if, if um, as this develops, maybe there's a time to check in again. If, uh, but yeah, thank you very much, James. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your gluten-free beer. And uh, <laughs> and Jeff, have a wonderful day uh, as it is your morning. Um, good way to start the day. Um, and thanks again. Okay. Bye. See you on the next one. Yes. Take care. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers.